The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. The election is over, so listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blight. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 88 with guest Kate Gregory, recorded live Thursday, November 4th, 2004. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on VBNet, ASP.NET, and C-Sharp classes online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who did not vote for Ralph Nader, this time, Carl Franklin! Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, everybody. I am Carl, and welcome to .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. And I'm sitting here in New London, Connecticut, uh, all by my lonesome this week. And talk about uh, it going to extremes. We have uh, last week's show, which, you know, would be considered hideously obscene by some. <laughs> And uh, to this show, in which Rory is not here, number one, because um, we're recording on Thursday, uh, and we usually record on Fridays, and Rory's usually doing his presentations on Thursday. We're really recording on Thursday, because we're going tomorrow to uh, Las Vegas to Dev Connections, and so we won't be here, nobody will be here to do the edit, uh, and uh, so we're just making a little rearrangements here. Also, uh, seeing as how Rory isn't here... And uh, we're doing it on Thursday. We thought, hey, we might as well use this opportunity to go back to the original format of .NET Rocks, where uh, it's just going to be an hour, hour and 15-minute interview. So no news of the week, no uh, Weird Wide Web, no Ask Rory, no Richard the Toy Boy, no, uh, no mail this week either, because we didn't really get any. I mean, so... It's uh, we're going back to our roots here, folks, and um, tune in next week when Rory will be here, and we'll be doing uh, a regular show. But of course, it's just going to be Rory and I talking to the guest. We're not going to uh, do the funny stuff, and uh, not to say that we're not doing any funny stuff anymore. We are. We're doing it in a new show called Mondays, and you can listen to that online at mondays.pwop. Dot com. That's P-W-O-P, the sound of a forehead slap, dot com. And uh, now that we have all that out of the way, I would like to introduce my guest this week, Kate Gregory. Kate is a founding partner of Gregory Consulting Limited, 
She has over two decades of scientific and engineering programming experience in a variety of programming languages, including Fortran, PLI, C++, Java, Visual Basic, and C Sharp. In 1989, Kate finally started using the Internet after hearing about it for years from friends who were already addicted. In early 1995, Kate co-authored a book on Usenet for Q, kicking off a writing career that now covers well over 10 books on programming and related topics, including XML, most recently Microsoft Visual C++.net 2003 Kickstart, uh, she is also a stand-up instructor teaching Microsoft.net, XML, C++ programming, object-oriented concepts, and UML for several training companies and selected clients. Kate's outstanding energy and knowledge on her subject matter have put her teaching in high demand around the world. Her recent programming work is almost exclusively in Visual C++ and Visual Basic.net on a variety of projects and typically features XML. She's a founding member of the Toronto.net Users Group, and the Kawartha Software Developers Association, a member of the Technology and Development Faculty Board for the CDI Corporate Education Services. She's also an adjunct faculty member of the Department of Computer Studies and Computer Science at Trent University, teaching object-oriented design in C++. She writes the Visual C++ column at CodeGuru, covering topics such as managed and unmanaged C++, migration and integration, interop, and more. And if that wasn't enough... She's a regional director uh, for Toronto and MVP and on the INETA Speakers Bureau. Will you please welcome the amazing Kate Gregory? How are you, Kate? Hey, Carl. Great great introduction. My goodness, you make me sound uh, experienced or something. Well, you are. And, yeah. And by the way, that's nothing of my doing. I was just reading your bio that, uh, that you've published, and it is pretty amazing. I mean, I you know, for, for guys like us, who started programming in on the TRS-80, you know, <laughs> you know, going I, I back. Had, I had a friend with a TRS-80. We used to tease him about it, actually. I'm sure you did. Trash-80. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what it my favorite, for. Uh, my favorite comparing old computer story, um, I was talking to Mike Blazak, who used to head the MFC team, about uh, uh, SIM computers, which you sort of had to put together yourself with a soldering iron and stuff. Oh, like Heathkit computers? Yeah. And uh, this 6502 basin and a um, little, you know, like six LED display, very cool. And uh, I was saying that we had one of these in our first house and we put the uh, power supply in a different room because it was so noisy. Wow. And uh, that's how we knew it was really our house because we didn't have to check with anyone before we uh, <laughs> drilled this hole in the wall. There's this little pause and then Mike says, I bought mine with my paper route money. <laughs> <laughs> so many, the- go ahead. That's when I began to realize I was a little bit older than some of the people in this business. Sahil in the chat room wants to know what you eat for breakfast. Um, I don't do breakfast. Coke, oh. Coca-Cola, that's my breakfast. Oh, my God. Coca-Cola for breakfast? I'm an old-style programmer, man. I'm a device for converting caffeine into Coke. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that's pretty good. I would have thought, you know, a brainiac such as you would be eating, you know, uh, granola or, you know, some hot cereal maybe with some oat bran, you know, <laughs> no. a little honey on it, you know? No, no? Uh, can of Coke, whatever I can find in the fridge. Wow. Yeah. Macaroni and cheese? Uh, probably tomorrow morning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, You know, speaking of PCs that you put together, I remember as a kid looking at the Heathkit catalog and saying, 
you know, wow, that looks really cool. Dad, can we do that? You know, and I had never even soldered a radio together, you know, and I'm like, Dad, let's do this. And he goes, no, you know, these things are tweaky enough without the added error quotient of, uh, you know, some kids sort of putting them together. I, you know, every time I tried to make like a model airplane, I would always end up like breaking in half one critical piece that held the whole thing together and the thing would disintegrate, you know. So I can just imagine, you know, you go to boot up your Heathkit PC and oops, you missed a solder joint somewhere and the whole thing smokes, you know? Yeah. Y- yeah, but it's great <laughs> for settling arguments later. Okay. Like like when you can say in the middle of an argument as uh, I'm married to my business partner and, and he's more hardware oriented than I am. And in the middle of an argument about programming for this was DOS when you have to write to the video yourself. He goes, well, when I built a video card, oh, and the geez. other guy's like, okay, we're done arguing. We're going to do it your way. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Things are so much more complex back then, you know, than they are now for the average programmer. You know, oh, that's- for sure. I mean, you had to manage everything. You had to you had to literally figure out what address to write to to make the pixels light up the right color. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember doing some of that, uh, some assembly language programming, which was hard enough. Uh, on a PC, and I can't imagine mainframe assembler or punch cards or any of that stuff. Yikes. I, I don't look back with nostalgia on any of that, that's for sure, especially not cards. Cards is terrible. Yeah. Um, it sure is nice now to have something like, a, you know, GDI Plus where you can say, draw me this line that shades from red to blue <laughs> yeah. and curves like this. I'm in. I like that yeah. a lot better. Yeah, right. And then there are people that say, oh, you still program drawing lines and stuff? Why don't you use, you know... I don't know what this stuff is, but, you know. Yeah, this, this, well, uh, um, I saw this Adobe thing for making uh, user interfaces that just look like spaceships. And it's like, oh, my gosh, another tool that someone thinks I should learn. Right. Well, enough about the past. Let's talk about what you do now. What's your, what's your current passion? I mean, there's quite a list of them, but pick one. Well, um, right now, I'm eagerly looking forward to the next C++ and having fun playing with betas of it. But what I'm doing all day long is mostly VB programming this year because the current version of C++ for .NET is really not for actually using. Yeah, that's what I hear. And I also hear that the next version is going to be completely revolutionary. Oh, it's amazing. Um, I I make people come to C++ talks. I like literally pull their elbows until they, they agree to come in and sit in the room. And then they look at me and they go, but I can read that code. I understand what that's doing. It's very good. So if the, the question, obviously, um, everyone's mind is, you know, why C++, why not C Sharp, and why make C++ more C Sharp-like, and why not just, you know, you know, what's a diff? I mean... Well, I tell you, when I was, the, the one line that sort of made people tell me they were going to switch back has got to be deterministic destruction. So uh-huh. in C++ for 2005, you can take a reference type like mm, a SQL connection, and you can create it on the stack as a local variable, you know, SQL wow. connection C. And when you hit your close brace, he goes out of scope. And, other, and, and obviously for anyone who didn't know that, that reference types get created on the heap and therefore they're out there, garbage collected, and you, you sort of lose control of them. Exactly. And, and there's a dispose pattern, but you have right. to remember to call dispose. And that doesn't um, always work either, too. I mean, right? It's not 100%. You don't know um, for sure that, you know, say you threw an exception in the middle of the block, your disposal right. would get skipped, so maybe you put your disposal finally, and you're sort of drowning in, in brace brackets and stuff. Yeah. And C++ has been doing this for a living for a long time. It right. knows how to, 
how to still make sure it cleans up deterministically. That is when you, you can say exactly when it's going to happen. And uh, it actually maps C++ destructors to uh, CLR disposes. Wait a minute. What is that? Say that again. So something like a SQL connection mm-hmm. doesn't have a destructor. It's right. probably not written in C++. Right. But what gets generated for you is a call to dispose. Mm. And mm. if you write a C++ class and you write a destructor for it, you know, tilde class name, it'll get exposed to the rest of .NET as a dispose method. Wow. So it works in, in both directions. It's a very slick little decision. So my mind's going here about how to sort of integrate that into a VBNet app or a C-sharp app. So if you could you f- do some sort of trickery to give your an object that you uh, subclass in C++ deterministic finalization? If the if, if you when you're in it's not what the class is in, it's what you're working in. Right. If you're working That's in true. C++ you can have deterministic finalization of everything regardless of the language they were written in. Right, but then, of Um, course, if you make a a reference type and create it from VB or C Sharp, then it's on the heap anyway, so what's the point? So you you got to live that, oh, I hope the garbage collector closes my file for me soon life. What about like a a static something that, I mean, I'm just going nuts here. (laughs) What about like some sort of static method that... Everybody wants deterministic destruction. They didn't think it was possible. Well, not everybody. Chris Sells wants it, but not everybody wants it. Well, everyone I show it to goes, oh, now, how can I have that in VBRC? Right, chart? right, right. That's what I'm thinking. That's right. So I have to stick my tongue out and say, ha, ha, you know. Yeah, you um, can't do it. That, that's going to be the C++ offering. You know, that, that's a huge deal, especially if you're writing stuff for the middle tier. So you write, so you write here you go. So you write a, uh, your, your object in C++ that does the, that works with the objects that need to be deterministically finalized. Yeah. And then you set up some sort of communication between the two, and there you go. Yeah, like write, write your middle tier or your data tier or whatever in C++. You probably still got a C++ person in, in the back room growing their beard out. Yeah, and, that's a scary uh, thought. <laughs> <laughs> write your UI in uh, VB or C Sharp if write you want. I mean, middle the tier in from... C++. Hmm? Write your middle tier in C++. Ouch. Yeah. And control your uh, your object lifetime. Yeah, but okay. So, how much more complex is the new C plus plus? How much less complex is the new C plus plus than its current uh, infestation? Well, it's, it's readable and it's attractive. So, there's no double underscores. Step one. Hmm. That that alone is worth major bonus marks, right? Hmm. Um, then there's things like. Um, some of the double underscores were these extra bonus keywords, like there was one called property. Mm-hmm. So I could have a function called get, um, I don't know, temperature, and I would stick this underscore underscore property qualifier on it. And then, you know, a thousand lines away elsewhere in the file, I could have a function that happened to be called set temperature, and I could also stick an underscore underscore property on it. Hmm. And the compiler would, you know, work it out and expose it as a read and write property. Now, you actually type the word property, an open brace, a bunch of stuff related to getting and setting, and a close brace. Hmm. So it's all together, and it's sort of... It's more elegant and more readable. It's very uh, intuitive. It's uh, it's good to hear that it's readable because I always called C plus plus a write only language. <laughs> <laughs> I reserved that for Perl and, and before that APL. <laughs> but, but, but you know, um, if you already know C plus plus, then C plus plus slash CLI, which is what they're calling. It's technically not a new language. It's a binding of the language to the runtime. How about compatibility? Um, 
Well, you're not going to take a bunch of C++ CLI code and then compile it with some 10-year-old Borland compiler right. and run it on a Unix box, right? All right. So it's um, it's sort of breaking a little compatibility of Um well, yes and no. If you're not using any CLR features, you'll be you'll be totally compatible and and everything will be fine. And you could use double underscores if you wanted to. You need a different compiler flag if you want to use the double underscore. Ah, okay. All right. That's good. That's a good way to do it. Yeah, but yeah. so if, you know, if you want to write like hello world from C++ 101, it looks exactly the same as it ever did. Nothing changes. Hmm. But if you want, when you're creating things on the managed heap, there's a, uh, a different operator. Instead of new, it's GC new. Hmm. So obviously, if you run that code through your 10-year-old Borland compiler, yeah, it's going to sure. go, I don't know what GC new is. Right, right. That's cool. But, but if, you know, as long as you're not using CLR features, you're still totally compatible. That is pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. And you're, uh, it's odd that, I mean, it's not odd. It's really cool, actually. You know, you and Dan Appleman are like hybrid C++ VB people. Yeah. And so what is that all about? I mean, why not C Sharp? Why well, VBNet? I, I got two, two reasons why not C Sharp. One is that, you know, I am getting older, and, and I know an awful lot of languages with semicolons and brace brackets, <laughs> yeah. and it's really embarrassing to forget what language you're in. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so if I spent my day alternating between two different semicolon brace bracket languages, I'd have many, many opportunities to accidentally type things that weren't in that language. Right, sure. So you want to make you a clean break. Yeah, so when I'm in VB, I know I'm in VB. You know, well, I still mm, sometimes put semicolons at the end of my lines. <laughs> but, you know, you get blue wigglies, you figure it out. Pretty, oh, yeah, okay, right, yeah, I'm in VB. Okay. Um, you know what? The other reason is that a, a lot of times I'm writing code for my clients to maintain, and they're asking me to do it in VB because they believe they can maintain it themselves or it'll somehow be simpler. There's a lot of misconceptions about VB versus C Sharp. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, they say, is. well, you know, my, my programs aren't that smart or I don't want to spend a lot of money, so do it in VB. And I'm like laughing at them. Because, yeah, that's you know, silly. It's just, <laughs> there's, I, I've been known to say that C Sharp is just VB with semicolons anyway. Yeah, it's um, true. It's, you know, there's some little bits of of syntax between the two Well, the, of them. Th- the difference is, is that you can write things that would like an entire if-then structure in one line of code. But come on, is anybody going to really be able to read and decipher that? Yeah. You know, the, I love VBNet because it's readable. That's right. And, and white space is a good thing. White space you know? is good. White space is good. Yeah, this is no longer 1990, 19, <laughs> you know, where we got to like, you know, take out the white space. Oh, because... Uh, yeah. File size, oh my god! File you know, size, I can make yeah. a hundred gig hard drive with for fifty bucks one of these days. So. And and the other thing is that the different little bits of syntactical sugar that they have, hmm. I tend to come down on the VB side. Yeah, like I've been doing a fair amount of Visual Studio tools for office work, and when you call into those uh, methods that are exposed out of Word and Excel, they might take like thirty parameters, and twenty nine of them are optional. Yeah. C Sharp doesn't do optional. Right. So you get to type in the one parameter you really mean and then type dot missing, type dot missing, type dot missing. Right. <laughs> and it's worse if it takes it by reference because then you have to actually create like a random variable, set it to type dot missing and pass it in by ref. So yeah. it's pretty pretty ugly. And, and you know, I, I don't diss C Sharp for choosing not to support optional parameters, but I'm going to choose VB for all my VSTO work. Yep, and it comes down to choice. I mean, it's America, yeah. right? Yeah. It's it's a free world. Use what you want to use. Use what you want to use. And and for people who don't already know C++, 
um, say people are coming from Java. I think C Sharp has a ton of appeal for them. It's nice yep. and, and simple and, and familiar. Absolutely. Use it. But yeah. I already know C++, so if I'm going to be typing semicolons, well, I'm going to do it in C++. Right. Cool. So so uh, ASP.NET, is that a part of your life as well? It is, and uh, and you can't do that in C++ because of the one-file uh, um, compiling model. So I do all of that in VB.NET. I'm doing a huge ASP.NET app right now uh, for a big Canadian client. One of the uh, things that I think of reasons to use C++, obviously for the unmanaged support when you need things like deterministic destructors and things, but, uh, but also for doing all those other programs that don't fall in the realm of applications, you know, all the little drivers and, you know, things that work with the UI and graphics at a low level. Um, yeah. You know, the, if you're not programming. Seriously, yeah. seriously geeky stuff where you want to get a little closer to the metal. Right. Um, and it's also now really turning into the interop language. Interesting. How so? Well, if you want to interop from managed to unmanaged code, there's three ways to do it from C++ and only two from VB or C Sharp. And the third way is, of course, the fastest of the three. So the way you can only do from C++ is significantly faster. And what is that? Um, it used to be called It Just Works. Oh, interop. yeah, IJW technology. <laughs> I, yeah. remember, I remember hearing this. Yeah. And, and now it's just called something boring like, C++ Interop, which really doesn't have the same ring. Man, you know, they should really lighten up with the names. <laughs> I love It Just Works. That's just so cool. Yeah. And, and well, you show it to people and they go, hey, I know why it's called that now. Because it's like you include the header file, you link to the live, and you carry on about your life as though it was managed instead of unmanaged code. It's very zen. You know? Yeah. I and love then that. people are like, yeah, but where's this, where's this scary bit where I have to type a whole bunch of punctuation? No, just call it. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah, the compiler works it out. It just works. I like that a lot. Um, but now, yeah, we're we're being a little bit more grown up. C plus plus interrupt. Okay. Okay. But it's still the fastest way, you know, to get from A to B. Do you have? Um, I know it's faster. Obviously, it's a little closer to the metal. But w- what about uh, interacting with com objects? I know that you know the the big problem with com objects and managed code is, and especially if you're hooking them in a destructor or a finalizer or anything, is that you have to call. Uh, release com object, um, you know, all the time to absolutely make sure that the com object gets destroyed. Do yeah, you have so similar it's issues? Slow, in- it's slow. You, it's really hard to control the lifetime. There's like lifetime impedance mismatch, you know? Right. Um, what I'm telling most of my clients to do is if they uh, need to still maintain the com component as a com component, because typically these people might have like four apps that use it from com and three apps to use it from .NET. Right. If they can refactor and pull the uh, the guts out of the com component into just an ordinary library, like a, a, a C plus plus DLL, if they wrote the thing in C plus plus in the first place. Yeah. Um, then call that from both the com component and .NET, rather than calling com from .NET. Okay. Save themselves uh, ocean of misery, both around performance and around lifetime management. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah, so I mean, it costs a little bit of time to do some refactoring, which is always scary because you're sure. touching code that's not broken. But if you're doing it, if you're not refactoring, if you're doing it right from the from the start, and you don't want to, you want to avoid that, you know, you should. That's right. Maybe... Build it as a library from the first place, and yeah. treat treat common.net as peers. Right. And have them both call the library. Interesting. So you know, I'm actually getting very curious about C plus uh, plus, <laughs> the next generation. And uh, think that I might actually check it out. How 
how much of a learning curve from a from a person who has done a little C++ in the past, kicking and screaming, you know, and is primarily a C-sharp or VB programmer? What, what kinds of things are we going to have to, are we going to have to know? Well, you're actually going to have less learning curve than if you had been part of the Everett, the double underscore, you know, generation. Okay. Um, because, for example, to make a class abstract, you use the incredibly hard to learn keyword abstract. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I always okay. wondered. I always wondered why we had must inherit in VB. Yeah. Is our VB brain not capable of understanding the abstract word? My favorite is shared instead of static. Yeah. That sounds so much better. Well, I mean, what was that meeting all about? <laughs> you know? Uh, no, our research shows that VB programmers will not get static. No. Yeah. They so will we'll not call get it shared. Yeah. That's so friendly. Yeah. Because yeah. sharing is good. Yeah. Well, this is the language that brought us <laughs> the and also and or else. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, there are things that even I, Mr. VB, don't like about Visual Basic and. Some of that, and if not, is nothing else. <laughs> Stuff can really get crazy. Is not, I think, is a new keyword now. Yeah, is not, and and else. Yeah, yeah. yeah somebody somebody blogged about ain't, which actually <laughs> contains like an apostrophe, right? So it's not a very valid VB keyword. How about something? How about if very if object reference is something? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Sure. I worked with a Fortran programmer who, um, when he went into C, made all these um, these macros so that he could use the Fortran dot le dot and so forth comparison <laughs> operators instead mm. of typing, you know, the less I, than. I have no idea what that's. I did take a Fortran class in college, but that's about it. I really don't know what that is. Well, it turns out that C is so flexible you can make it look like Fortran, which is a very sad thing to choose to do. I know Fortran has like operators that are good for mathematics and science and things and a lot of scientific stuff, and, and that's really the the draw of Fortran. Totally scientific yeah. programming. I, I I modeled clouds and and things like that in Fortran. Wow, modeled clouds. Yep. What's yep. that all about? What's that like? Oh, that was basically to prove that all the pollution in Canada was America's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure how well the project but turned out. But that's not true. You guys still burn coal up there, and you're polluting the environment too. Yeah, no, it was some complex thing involving, you know, the the Tennessee Valley coal all drifting up. In and fact, down. you're screwing up our Vermont maple syrup because of the acid rain coming down from Toronto. Yeah, well, that's it. It's all a big cycle. The Tennessee smoke comes to Toronto, and the Toronto smoke wanders off. And yeah, yeah. oh, well. heaven only knows where the Vermont smoke goes. That's funny. So, object-oriented Fortran. Been, been there? Uh, no. No? No. The closest I can get to that is I do have an object-oriented COBOL joke. Okay. The real name of object-oriented COBOL should, of course, be add one to COBOL. <laughs> Talk about wordiness, right? <laughs> well, I love the, these people who say VB is such a wordy language, you know, because of things like is not nothing and stuff. But then, you know, let's let's do some serialization. In C Sharp, VB, C++, doesn't matter. Yeah. Dim BF as new system dot runtime dot serialization dot formatters dot binary dot binary formatter. Come on, <laughs> you think VB is you're complaining about is nothing, and you you know yet you have no problem going into nine namespaces deep to get to get a binary format or something. 
But thanks to IntelliSense, you probably only have to type four characters of that. Right, yeah, and especially if you're using Code Rush, right? Yeah. Boink, 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 done. Absolutely. <laughs> Typing is, is so 2002. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So we also have something in common that we both wrote books on sockets, although yours was probably a lot closer to the metal than mine was. My My aim in writing a sockets book was to try to give – VB4 and then VB6 programmers access to tools that were high enough level so that you didn't get mucked in the mire of sockets and low enough level so that obviously you could program them. But uh, you're probably using the sockets API directly, I'm sure. I actually um, wrote my own sockets class for the book because wow. I, didn't, I didn't like the one that was in MFC at the time. Okay, so a sockets class to wrap the sockets wrap API? WinSock API, yeah. Yeah. When you said I wrote my own, I thought she didn't write her own stack, which is what I was thinking. <laughs> no, no, no. I just wrapped up the APIs. I just didn't <laughs> like the way that the first version of the MFC um, C-Socket class did a few things. So I did differently. Uh, I wonder if the Visual Basic um, Sockets OCX was based on that <laughs> because it, it didn't do some things right either. And I chose, I chose not to use it in my book. Have you ever, have you ever had that? Happened to you? This happened to me. I chose not to use the Microsoft Sockets thing because I didn't like it, and and I had heard uh, reports that that it, it was not very good at all when acting as a server, mm-hmm. like uh, had bugs and stuff. And I heard that from several sources, so I decided not to go there. And I used a third party tool that worked really, really well, but it had a splash screen, and if you wanted to, you know, use it, that's like seventy five bucks or something. But I figure. I'd be doing a disservice to people if I were to, you know, write a book on how great sockets are and then write it all around a tool that sucks. Yeah, and people would, uh, if they had to choose between blaming some author they never heard of before and Microsoft, they're not going on the Microsoft. No, exactly. So I thought I was doing people a favor, but, um, you know, go read my historical comments on Amazon sometime. You'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was the right decision, right? Absolutely. I mean, the the early versions of socket support, you know, really weren't that good. And uh, I think I managed to come out with some sort of excuse like that if you were still on C++ 1.5, then, you know, you wouldn't have the class. And so we couldn't yeah. rely on it. We'd just have to use mine. But but my motivation was just really, I think this is a better class than that one. So yeah. that's what I went with. Yeah. Well, um, hang on just one second because uh, I want to tell everybody about our, our classes coming up. And uh, we'll, we'll be right back. So stick around. So uh, let me tell you that we've added some new classes for uh, 2005 to Franklin's Net roster. Uh, if you've heard about the VBNet Masterclass, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but uh, it's uh, not for the faint of heart. It's for intermediate to advanced VB6 or even people, uh, developers, or even people who have been using .NET but just sort of peripherally. We dive in. Uh, good typing skills are going to help a lot. And, uh, you know, we, we really do a lot. So check that out at www.franklins.net. The class schedule goes as follows for this. November 15th, obviously, uh, coming up here. Uh, December 6th, January 10th. February 7th, March 29th, and uh, that's the VBNet Masterclass. 
the ASP.NET Masterclass, uh, which is focused completely on ASP.NET, no Windows Forms, and therefore goes into a lot more detail about building you know, user controls and web controls and using the stuff that's there, being data-driven, all that. Uh, December 13th, January 24th, February 21st, and March 7th. Uh, we also uh, accepting seats for the C-Sharp.net Boot Camp Extended with Richard Hale Shaw, which is happening November 29th. And uh, his cost is now 2900 bucks. And by the way, our classes, our price is going up from 2000 to $2,300. So... Uh, if you want to get in the class for 2000 you want to go to the November or December classes. So, uh, Kate, hey. you've uh, been doing some work with Visual Studio Tools for Office, I hear. And, uh, in fact, you were recently uh, talking to, those, to, the, to the guys. What was it, today you were telling me you were on a, on a phone Today I was call? on a, a webcast for the 2005 uh, version of the product. So what's, uh, what do you think? Oh, listen, I was very excited 18 months ago when I started using this because uh, because I'm not a, a UI person. Yeah. Um, and the problem with, with users is when you give them user interfaces, they, they, uh, their minds are contaminated with other stuff they've seen. Mm. So you give them some kind of a grid thing and they're like, uh, wow, that's great, but I should be able to sort it. So yeah. it's not that hard to write some code to make the grid sort, right? And then they right. say, um, yeah, I should be able to actually make a graph out of it. Or uh, I should right. be able to print it differently than how it's, you know, it's a screenshot or something. Right. And, uh, of course, it's all because of Excel, right? Everything you can <laughs> do in Excel, right. they expect that your app will do. And so the great thing about VS2 is you're like, okay, buddy, if you like Excel so much, why don't you just use Excel, you know? And um, I'll write some managed code to put the numbers in there, and then you can go to town and make pivot tables and make graphs and print things and email it to all your buddies and everything. Right, be great. right. And so um, the VSTO for 2003 gives you that, and you're writing managed code, so you're writing VB. If yeah. you're a total masochist, you could write C Sharp, but you're writing VB, and you can call web services or you know go into databases or whatever you want. Yeah. And uh, it all just says, "Here's my user interface. It's 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 Excel or it's Word, and you already know how to drive it. So right. you know, no training." <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, that is a really, really cool feature of this VSTO stuff that I, you know, I have never done um, Excel macro programming. I was never like a big office programmer in general. No, me neither. I'll know, although I realize the value. I mean, the value is that, you know, the business world uses these documents for everything, you know, and if you can provide some functionality behind their spreadsheets and behind their code, behind their documents that they're already using, well, gee, that's, you know, to a business user, that's, like, glorious. That's right. So they're happier, and at the same time, the programmers are happier, and it sounds like, a you know, a great combination to me. Right. And I don't have to learn VBA. I can, I can use the whole .NET framework instead of trying to learn some new set of techniques. And if you've never heard of Visual Studio Tools for Office, you can go back and listen to the show we did with Robert Green. Uh, on that when it just came out. But uh, what separates this from previous sort of uh, office programming technologies is that the code is not, does not exist in the documents, right? It exists in an assembly, which is in a shared place. So, yeah, yeah and this is critical because 
you don't want to send out a new document just to update the code to people. Well, and, and even if you did send out a new document, people don't always listen. I mean, right. when, when I was writing books, the, the publisher sends you this file, Word document, with all the templates in it to do things. And you write like 11 chapters, and then they say, here's the new template, you know, and then you're supposed to start using that for all your other chapters. Right, and right. You've just got such a mishmash of code and which macros are where. Right. And you can um, take so all by, that, yeah. yeah. Take all the, it's, it's more of that uh, deployment focus that, that we're seeing in the whole .NET universe of saying, how can we actually deal with, with the way people really use stuff um, uh, as opposed to the way we thought they might be using stuff? Have you developed anything with it? I did a few things for a customer of mine because they really needed to make that macro dialogue go away. <laughs> Um, they had this gorgeous workflow thing going on, and it worked at all the low levels. And when it went up to the top, um, uh, they just emailed the, doc- the Word documents around, and when you open them up, uh, code ran. And uh, the highest-ranking people, the people with Windows in their offices, um, when they opened that Word document and saw that warning dialogue saying this document contains macros, they'd, they'd been well-trained by IT. They would say, right. no, don't run the macros. Yeah. And uh, the whole workflow app failed because... The top guys would not run the macros. Oh, man. So uh, that was quickly converted into a VSTO solution. How did, how did you deal with a security issue? Um, well, so yeah. you have to get IT to put a code access security policy on uh, everybody's machine. And they understood um, that and they figured it out? Yeah. They, did you they, write the policy? No, I just told them what to do. I said, make it like this. And, uh, and you know, they, they did something with a lot of initials in it that IT people are cool about. Huh. You know, some automated, oh, we'll just push that out with insert initials here. Yeah, right. And uh, I said, okay, that's why you guys are in the basement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But, you know, one, you know, that is a real issue, right? Everyone has to have the .NET framework. Everyone has to have Office 2003, and everyone has to have the right security policies uh, because by default none of this code is trusted. So just by out of curiosity, did you do the signing thing? So you, did you sign your assembly with a strong name and then and then trust all assemblies with that strong name? Yeah, or with that Yeah, name. yeah. 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 That's what I do. I love that. I love <laughs> it, that solution. If it comes from us, it's, it's safe. Good. 100%, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and um getting that policy out uh to the to all the users, you just created a setup program that administrators could run? Um I, well, as I say, I let the basement guys do it, but that's my guess. Yes. Yeah. And uh and you know, the, you don't have to do it on on 30,000 desktops. You have to do it on the desktops of the people who are using the app. Do you know? Do you know of any resources that uh, you can send people to um, for creating those code access security policies? There's a there's a whole office um, developer center. Uh, before I say a URL, maybe I should type it. It's it's something brilliant like msdn.microsoft.com/office. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll we'll uh, provide a link to that. But anything particularly on um, doing code access security policies that you know of? And if you no, do, we can find it. Head. No, because I'm lucky enough to have basement people at that client. Ah, yeah. Yeah. You throw some meat down to them every once in a while, and some Coke. <laughs> Co- you, know. you roll cans of Coke down the stairs. Slide a pizza <laughs> under the door. No, <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Yeah, those people are invaluable, and we love them dearly. They run the firewall too. You have to love them. What kind of, uh, back to the sockets thing, what kind of uh, implementations have you done with, with sockets? Because t- 
to tell you the truth, that's where the really cool and interesting programming happens, in my opinion, is when you have a raw communications channel from program A to program B, and you can do whatever you want. What kinds of uh, cool cool things have you done? Well, for for the book, for the heck of it, we just sort of implemented the the clients and servers that were in common use then. So we did okay. like a, a mail client and a FTP client and oh, cool. uh, uh, news and so forth. You know, antiquated things that no one does anymore. Hey, I, I wrote a Gopher client. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was. I think we did have Gopher in there actually. Uh, Gopher. Gopher was the first time that the internet had any kind of magic to it for me. Yeah, me too. You know, like you're you're, you're following things and you don't know where you're going to go, and that, everyone thinks that's normal now with the web. But that was a whole new thing with with Gopher. Well, it was the web essentially, except that it was a folder metaphor. That's yeah, all, a file folder metaphor. But that you would go somewhere and there would be this list of things, and one would look interesting, and you'd go somewhere else. You kind of look up and say, "I don't know where I am." Yeah. Um, and and that sort of serendipity thing. Um, we all got hooked on it. We just found another way to uh, to achieve that. So Hill from the chat room says, uh, and he's our resident question asker, by the way, uh, what are your feelings about WinFX in comparison to Win32? If that doesn't open up a can of worms, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, really, that, that's, uh, use other side of page if necessary. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, I am looking forward, perhaps very forward, <laughs> <laughs> to getting to to use that eventually, um, but you know, in some ways, Win32 is is always going to be with us. Yeah. Right. Um, when we think we're calling some exciting .NET base class library today, uh, guess what it turns around and does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for everything to be completely redone, 100% managed, is a uh, a good thing to look forward to. Um, also, from because I have always a C++ person, um, the integration, bizarrely enough, between old stuff like MFC is better in newer technologies like in, in uh, WinFX and in Avalon in the future than it is in what we have going on right now, for example, with WinForms and with the base class libraries. So today, if you want to yeah. call, in, if you want to call the base class libraries from C++, uh, old. Uh, some unmanaged C++ is compiling to native code, you have to go through COM. But in right. the days to come, there'll be better ways to do that. How about enterprise services? What do we know about that? Done any Enter- work with enterprise services? I, I wrote a whole course on enterprise services. Oh, wow. Um, What's your take uh, on that? Because, you know, we had Javal on just... He was the first guy to talk about it on our show. Yeah. And he was also the last guy to talk about it. I mean, not... <laughs> Not a lot of people, well, and we also, I said on that last show with Jabal that we did some sessions at Dev Connections on, on that, and nobody showed up. So, what, what what can you say about that? Well, you should probably be scared of enterprise services, because the rule for it is don't use it unless you really, really need it. Really? So you're the yeah. first person I've ever heard say that. If you need, say, distributed transactions across, like you know, uh, SQL and Oracle, okay, then you need enterprise services. Um, if you need the object pooling um, and all the different slice dice and different ways of rolling object pooling that it gives you, then okay, go and do it. Just-in-time activation? Don't. Yeah, there's a just-in-time activation and uh, um, All those pooling. other things, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very complicated. And there's, there's prices to pay, like some of your classes have to inherit from service components. Um, 
you don't take it on just because, oh, yeah, I heard transactions are cool. Right. Um, right. You know, because maybe you can just use transactions in ADO or you can just use pooling. If all you want to pool is your database connections, there's pooling in ADO.net. Now, this new system.transactions namespace, which you've all talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, is that that's not uh, enterprise services, is it? I don't believe it is. I think for enterprise services is for this full-on distributed transactions across two, you know, completely unrelated providers that don't know anything about each other. Um, yeah. Which in enterprise services is a good name for it because that's where it comes into play. So I have a fair number of clients who've been formed by mergers. Mm-hmm. And it's really entertaining when all Oracle shops get merged with all SQL shops because the guys who arrange the merger don't know what these things are, right? Mm, mm, yeah. <laughs> and then and then your apps have to somehow magically talk to each other. And so if you live that life, then you need enterprise services. Yeah, right. But if you're sitting at home saying, I think it'd be really cool if we could write an app that figured out exactly how much to charge for our widgets, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not going to need enterprise services. Yeah. And uh, pooling probably is a lot less required now that uh, the object model or the object's Object creation story is a lot better in .NET. Exactly. I, I, Machines I was at a are talk faster, talk. et cetera. There's a chalk talk in South Africa, and someone was he was having an issue with object lifetime in his middle tier. And yep. he was saying he was going to start using enterprise services so that he could do some object pooling. That Let me guess. Control it. Let me guess. They were using a P3 400 megahertz with, <laughs> with 256 megs of RAM. And that, yes, he had a hardware a great, budget issue. <laughs> and loading a great big com object with every request in ASP. Yeah, yeah. and so he's oh, having multiple go. great big com objects kicking around. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, this was his solution, that he was going to get enterprise services into the mix, or he was going to do remoting, because remoting also has some object lifetime hmm. uh, management for you. Um, but, you know, there are other ways to tackle. Yeah that particular issue. And and watch for Indigo, too. The, I like the promise of Indigo that it's all the good stuff in enterprise services, all the good stuff in web services, and all the good stuff in remoting, and it's not done until it's as fast as the fastest of the three. Right, and also with the least amount of code as possible, which is yeah. another great thing that I like about it. Yeah. Um, getting back to WinFX, I always, I'm always hearing confusion about this, about what's managed, what's not, you know? Uh, Longhorn is supposed to be backward compatible with Win32, yet it's supposed to be 100% managed. What What's the story there? What's managed and what isn't? I just keep hearing that everything is managed. So and, that, and that the, the issue of making yourself available to be called by unmanaged code is solved in a way that's different from the way that it's solved today. So, it, it's okay. Today, it's so somehow we're not, we're going to have a Win32 DLLs that aren't, really Win32 DLLs that are going to sort of have emulators in a managed world or something? Or? Yeah, I think that the wrappers the will turn inside out. Really? So, you know, who, who's wrapping who? I mean, it's a lot, that, that's the same thing I was talking about with refactoring your comm component, right? If you've right. got something that needs to be available to old or new, today you can put a new wrapper around old, but there's nothing to stop you in the future from putting an old-style wrapper around the new. Either way, you're still available to old and new. Well, what about API calls that require pointers and things like that? Well, this is where C++ comes in, right? Yeah. Because C++ is a language that sits in both places. No, no, no. I mean, I mean you have a Win32 app, right, yeah. that is using API calls in Win32, that uses pointers, that's managing its own memory. Is that going to run on Longhorn? I think so. That's the plan. 
I mean, the, you know what they always say, right? It's not done if it can't do that yet. Right. And it's so, going to be managed? Yeah. So the program's going to be run and it's going to be managed and the program doesn't have to do anything special. That's the, that's the <laughs> story. <laughs> doesn't that sound weird? <laughs> it does, yes. Um, but then, you know, like a lot of things that we do today sound weird five years ago. Right? Wow. Like, I, uh, wow. I just never thought about it that way before. I always thought like they're going to have some sort of emulators, yada, yada, that, you know, that will emulate Win32, but, in, you know, keep the whole thing managed. But it sounds like, wow. You just let your, your unmanaged code call into managed code and then come on back out. And, and the, obviously the shim that sits in between has got some maybe fancy dancing to do around managing memory, but memory is still just memory at the end of the day. It just seems weird to me that if I have a program I wrote in C++ and I alloc mem, you know, and allocate and try to lock an area of memory, yeah. and then I have a pointer to that, and I start messing around with that memory and unlock it, that, you know, something is going to kick in there. You know, you know what I mean? And, clean and, that up for you? And well, clean maybe, that up and uh, make it managed without me having to do anything? Doesn't that well, seem like it would really hurt the performance? Yeah, because you see, you can make things managed by saying, I'm going to go put something over on the managed heap that knows where to find this stuff that's un- in the unmanaged, not hmm. heap, but area, right? So it's just all about layers and shims wow. and wrappers. And and maybe you will take a performance hit. Right. Um, when I'm telling people how to work out their interop stuff about whether they should put a wrapper around their, their old code so that .NET can call it or port their old code and put a wrapper so their old code can call it, the number one question is, well, who do you want to give the performance hit to? Right. Um, if you want your old COM apps to feel clunky and slow and your new .NET apps to feel zippy and fast, then write all your new stuff managed and, and uh, make your old code interop. Hmm. Um, and so just because it can be done doesn't mean it can be done quickly. So when you say, oh, yeah, we'll still c- maintain that compatibility layer for your old programs, it doesn't mean that they'll be as fast as they would have been if they were managed. I'm, it's blowing my mind. <laughs> I have to really think about that. <laughs> that. If they pull that off, you know, I, if they're trying to pull that off now and that's what's delaying Longhorn, man, I totally understand. <laughs> 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 Seriously. That's that's insane. I mean, that's great if they can do that and, and if the performance is good. You know, there's got to be a program out there that can crash it, though. Got to be. Well, they sort of did the same kind of thing with, see, they sort of did the same kind of thing with, like, DOS emulation, right? But it was an emulator. And so why wouldn't they run well, it? Well, I guess there's a, a fine line between an emulator and a wrapper. I suppose you're right. But an emulator, to me, sort of sounds like an, an, a, a whole separate process environment that you know, that is set up to do some hooks, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's sort of more, you know, more managed underneath. Yeah, wow. Jeez. Excuse me while I get my brain back in off the table. <laughs> so what it, has that effect on people. Yeah. What other things can, uh, what other mind-blowing things have you been thinking about lately, Kate? Um... Or fun. What do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? I just went on vacation. I, I just went on my first like real big vacation for about 10 years. And I, I went to England. You went on a 10-year vacation? 
No, <laughs> two, three weeks if you count <laughs> Tech at Africa. Oh, okay. Um, I went to England and France and Africa, and I had a fantastic time. But so, I, what did you do over there? I took my kids to, you know, Buckingham Palace and um, the Tower of London and Notre Dame and the Louvre and cool. Yeah, it was it was very cool, very uh, very educational and hardly any code at all. Do they still have Mary Queen of Scots beheaded, severed head somewhere over there? Uh, actual <laughs> severed head wise was a, was a little thin on the ground. Although there was a couple skulls in the British Museum and some guy who'd been preserved in a peat bog. Wow. My kids took a lot of pictures of the peat bog guy. Here's a here's a little trivia thing you may not know about me, but uh, when I was twelve, I think twelve or thirteen, I went uh, with a, a westerly chorus over to England on a tour, and we did, I was a boy soprano, and we did uh, tours of uh, cathedrals. We did concerts in cathedrals all over England and Scotland. And we were the first, I think, one of the first American choirs to sing in Westminster Abbey. That would have been cool. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the claim to fame. But it was pretty awesome. I had never, I had seen big churches before, but I had never gone into a cathedral. Like, you know, these are, thousands of years old and you walk in and they're like I remember the most the scariest one was in Durham Durham Cathedral Mm -hmm. it was like dark and cold and stone and you go you clap your hands and it goes you're supposed to be scared in there the whole building is built to make you feel Odd. I know it is. It's jarring, and the or the guy in the organ loft was practicing. You know, it's just like haunted mansion, kind of sick and <laughs> twisted. You know, and you look down on the floor, and it's like here lies Saint Peter or something. It's like what? Whoa, whoa! Everybody, you know, they have, everybody is in Westminster Abbey. Yeah, in Westminster Abbey. That's right. All the saints, and they're all dead, buried there under the floor. It's mm-hmm. just. It was real, the, it was really awesome. The creepiest thing in Westminster Abbey was someone who's not buried there. Um, no relative, I'm pretty sure, but Franklin, as in the Northwest Passage, Franklin. Oh wow! Um, huh. And he has a little monument there, and then underneath it, it says, "Not here. The ice has him." Oh, like, ooh, creepy, right? That is creepy. <laughs> yeah, a little Canadian corner, Westminster Abbey. They had. Uh, uh, the Battle of uh, the Plains of Abraham commemorated with a honk and big statue of somebody dying in somebody else's arms. Yeah. Wow. Very big on that in Westminster Abbey, actually. So what uh, what events are you are you doing these days? What kind of... So I know? just did Tech at Africa where it was like a million degrees and you had to wait for it to cool off enough to be able to go out for a swim. And then mm. next week, to sort of balance that, I'm going to go to Winnipeg <laughs> where it will <laughs> probably be snowing. Uh-huh. And, uh, so what, what's going up, on up in Winnipeg? We're doing in Canada a, uh, an MSDN user group tour. Uh, the regional directors are all, uh, basically, as far as I can tell, flying to each other's cities and uh, just crisscrossing the country to tell people all about uh, smart clients and the next version of Visual Studio Tools for Office. Great. And uh, there's about five or six going on at once on November 10th, and then we're sort of scattering out through November and, uh, and doing a bunch more. And uh, so that's a lot of, of fun for us all to be doing the same talks at once. And, and normally when things happen in Canada, they tend to happen one city at a time, so they stretch out over six or eight weeks. Hmm. So it's uh, it's uh, really enjoyable to think we'll all be doing it together. Yeah, that is neat. 
And, and the, the VSTO 2005 product is going to be just a treat to develop because um, people who have been doing it the 2003 way are going to say, oh, here's all the parts I don't like fixed. Um, and the people who hadn't gotten around to it yet are going to feel all smug that they don't have to learn the hard way <laughs> to do things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> it like always the, C++. the case? Right. Yeah. Same with C++. You know, if you, if you didn't do any C++ in the double underscore days, you can feel all smug and skip that and go straight to the 2005 uh, beautiful and elegant way. Yeah, I may be actually persuaded to do that. Um, yeah. Well, um, you know, go ahead. VSTO 2005 does things like um, hosting Excel in Visual Studio. So when you're doing a VSTO project and you hit run, it loads up either Excel or Word, depending on which kind of, of, of thing you're doing, and opens your test document and so forth and so on. But it does it in a, in a, a separate right. um, window because it actually spins up the app. So for the 2005 product, that's actually hosted right with inside Visual Studio. So it's a and little if, bit more integrated. Yeah, and if your last experience of hosting Word or Excel was back in the Olay 2 days, <laughs> you need to wake up and smell the coffee that's because right. it's, it's really, so... really much, 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 much better. Mm-hmm. For sure. I've seen demos of it, and, and they actually like come up, and you can yeah. interact with the product. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting um, feature that wasn't really there before. Um, and... Smart documents uh, in VS2 2005. The current shipping version of smart documents really feels like about a 0.8. Like it's not, it works, it's just not easy. So tell us what smart documents are. Smart documents are a Word document which is um, secretly, um, and you can show it but people don't, secretly mapped to an XML schema. And so as the person is typing in the, in the document, there's things happening over in the action pane to make the document easier to type. Um, hmm. So the, the classic example is some sort of a sales letter where in the action pane there'd be a drop-down box with customer names and you'd pick one. And it would shoot the name, address, typical mail mergey kind of stuff um, into the letter for you. And then the action huh. pane would have more information in it, say, about products this person's ordered or about their credit limit or whatever that would help you to uh, compose the document as you're going along. So it's sort of clippy all grown up. <laughs> yeah, or and very, very customized. I mean, document by document. So here's the code that works with the sales letter, the completely different set of code to work with, I don't know, the uh, we really need the money. You, we've asked you for it six times letter. Right. Um, and, and all of this code is managed. You could also do this in VB6 with unmanaged code. And the experience is pretty much the same in both VB6 and in VB.net. There's this interface with this about 400 methods in it, uh, and then you had to implement a whole lot of very, very repetitive methods. Hmm. And um, for the 2005 product, that's basically been replaced with a visual designer. So whereas in the old product, you would say, when you're in this element of the XML, there are two controls in the action pane, and the name of control number one is, I don't know, name, and Mm -hmm. the type of control number one is, it's a text box, that's all gone, and you just sort of drag a text box onto a design surface and... Ah. The implementation of the 400 functions is done behind the scenes for you. Now, I know in the current version of Visual Studio Tools for Office, you basically have Word documents, you have Excel documents, and that's it. Are they going to try to attack the other Excel, uh, I'm sorry, the other Office applications? Yes. I'm not sure they've announced which ones. The current version doesn't bring in anybody new. It's still just um, Excel, Word, and Word template. But their, their goal is to hit all of them. Yes. Um, it didn't occur to them that there'd be a lot of call for, say, automating PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah. But there is. You know, people want help building their PowerPoint apps uh, the same as they do with their Word documents. Now, of course, the real trick would be to get other vendors, 
you know, to use this kind of technology in their applications. Like, I can think of a couple, like Adobe Premiere, you know, if you're making movies, which yeah, we do. Same, same thing where you can re- re- run off your own code in the middle of what you're doing. Oh, God, I would love to. I would love yeah. to. Uh, or the or the audio program that we use, which is now Adobe Audition, used to be Cool Edit Pro. I'd love to be able to have some sort of, you know, programming interface to these to these uh, you know objects that you're using. Yeah. So what about InfoPath? Have you done much with that? Um, InfoPath is. I love doing demos of InfoPath because it makes people's jaws drop. Yeah. Then when I go and to they try say, to do "Oh my God, my job is in jeopardy." Yeah. <laughs> then when you go to try to do it in real life, then you realize your job is not in jeopardy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good point. I haven't actually used it, but uh, my good friend Tom Robbins has written a book on InfoPath programming, and he's really excited about it. We're going to well, have you know, him on to talk about it soon. If you just want to make a form in which people are going to fill in, you know, ten or fifteen pieces of information with some pretty obvious validations, and then Stick yeah. it in the database or stick it in a web service. InfoPath is wonderful for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you want a full-on workflow situation where, depending on what they typed in box three, you do one of the following ten things. Oh, right. Yeah. But I, you know, the first time I used it, I was really bitter. I I was trying to map to a, a SQL database, so I said, "Here's my database," and it had read my schema and made me a form and everything. And you know, my name in the database was only allowed to be twenty characters long, and I was trying to set up my validations. And it wouldn't. I couldn't find a way to make a validation to say that you could only type twenty characters. Yeah. So I was bitter until mm. I realized it had done that for me because mm-hmm. it read my schema. So of course, you know, there's only twenty characters in the database. It wouldn't let you type more than twenty characters in the form. And not only you know couldn't I set that up, but I didn't have to set that up, and all of that's automatically there. <laughs> so if you just want you know a data entry, oh, it's great, and you can make it look beautiful if you if that's your style. I am. Um, all my apps look like a programmer wrote them. Yeah, a bunch right. of gray boxes with gray buttons on them and text boxes for you to type in. <laughs> right, sure. Uh, so my InfoPath forms tend to look like that too. But um, apparently you've got sort of cascading style sheets and HTML at the wazoo things happening. So you can make it you know, fit your corporate look and feel. Well, it's another good uh, segue into user interface. So uh, you say you're not a user interface design expert. But what it, have you used any um, third-party tools, you know, like uh, Infragistics or Component One or, or any of those uh, for Windows Forms applications to do these kinds of complex things? No, I, I really haven't. And uh, you know what? I, I probably should. I, uh, I get the opportunity to hear about these things from time to time, but it doesn't always work out in terms of uh, uh, being able to play with them on a project. It seems like the projects that you have time to try new things on are the projects that Nobody really cares how they work out. <laughs> and you really do need time. I mean, if you buy a third-party solution, you're going to have to spend some significant time figuring out how they do things. Yeah. So, yeah. That's... Um, I know in the past, though, that user interface components have been the best money I ever spent. When I yeah. was doing um, you know, more visual uh, calm work, I don't really hardly do any calm work now for UI, Um it gives somebody like $100, you know, for some little control. Right, and it's right. got 10 programmer years of effort in it. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I understand they must sell thousands and thousands of them, but, uh, boy, it, the the cost of them compared to the price of, you know, one or two hours of programmer time. I know. It's ridiculous. It, it, you know, this is also another good question. Ed. I I know that, you know, there's still a lot of people sort of, on the fence, especially managers who were programmers in the old VB days and the old Visual C++ days. 
And uh, now they're managers and they're making decisions about technologies and stuff and, and sort of a little afraid of Windows Forms because of their old pain. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a column called Old Pain, which <laughs> I think is the demise of, uh, of critical thinking. And, uh, you know, if you're going to work in this industry, you have to get over your old pain. You know, you can't apply your experiences of one technology to another technology, even though those technologies come from the same company. And, um, you know, so thinking about ActiveX controls in the past, a lot of people got burned because they would buy these controls, they would have bugs, they didn't ship the source code, you're out of luck trying to talk with some tech support person. I was a tech support person. I know their pain because I talk to these people. And, uh, you know, it's just not – that's an impossible situation for a lot of people. They don't want to get into that. But when you think about uh, .NET controls, A, no DLL hell issues. So the versioning issues go away. B, you have Reflector. Even if you don't have the source code, you have the source code. Because right. you can use a tool no, like Reflector. Nothing's Ref- hidden. Nothing is hidden. You, and even if it was written in C Sharp, you can read it in VB. All right? Reflector. You've got disassemblers. You've got, uh, you know, your knowledge of the framework. You, you have objects that have uh, overridable members all over the place. So if you don't like what happens when a particular event gets fired, you can override. You can create your own, which you should be creating your own subclasses. You override those on event handlers, and then you just swallow the event. Or you do some code before you raise the event. You do some code after. And in that way, you get to do exactly what you want. And it's better than having the source code. So so what do you think um, of of that? Um, you know, there's a lot of people that sort of operate on their old preconceptions and old pain. Well, they, they sure do. And you're totally right. I'll tell you an old pain story. Uh, a million years ago, like maybe 1985, I worked with a guy who wouldn't let us use underscores in our variable names. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so oh, wait can, a minute. Is this a Sybase thing? Uh, no, it turns out to be based on one particular IBM printer. Um, <laughs> this particular <laughs> printer, which, which this guy had used, to fit more lines on a page, it stripped the bottom pixel out of every other line. Oh. And so underscores would become spaces. And therefore? And therefore, <laughs> underscores were evil. And we hadn't had one of those printers for like 10 years. Oh. <laughs> and he was living on his old pain. Right. That's what I'm saying, you know? We we it's our duty to wake these people up, to expose their irresponsible behavior, you know? And, and what you're ta- saying about .net components and hey, if you don't like it just inherit from it and override it. I mean, that is such a powerful story that most people don't truly get. I totally agree. It sounds like it couldn't possibly be true. How can that be right? I don't have the source code to it. How can I inherit from it? And so they don't stop and sit in that space long enough to realize if that is true, what does that change? Because it is true. Yes. And it changes everything about relying on, on someone else to provide some of your functionality. Right. Because, you know, okay, I like 90% of your thing and I'm going to take care of the 10% I don't like and make it my way and I don't need you to help me do that. Right. I'm in. I want to use that component because I'm not hostage to it. Yes. Wonderful. That's the, you know, and that's the, that's the approach to problem solving that, and I'm sure you talk about this in your OOP talks and your classes. I do too. I preach, I preach on and, you know, I'm really trying to turn people into, uh, from inventors to plumbers, 
You know, instead of trying to come up with the right algorithm or the right trick or, you know, or the right patch to download to do something, you, you really just have to find out what's there already and what inputs to hook up to what outputs and what to override and, you know, to become the object that you're trying to fix and then to fix your internal behavior. That's, that is a problem-solving approach that you have to take as an object-oriented programmer, not the, you know, how can I affect this from the outside? How can I kludge around it? And You know Absolutely. what I mean? Absolutely. And, and that anthropomorphism, when I'm teaching my old courses, I, I, I say to people, you know, if you believe there's a little guy in your computer who kind of runs around and carries mm. things around for you, <laughs> then you're going to have a much better time in my course. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But, you know, like, it's just, all right, so I'm the calm component and I'm getting a click. What am I going to do? Right. But if you can think that way, right. you know. Yeah. Um, and the days are gone when people will just pay you to, to t- type code for six years. Right. You know, like that's right. That, that there's no budget, so uh, you got to make it work. And and uh, having a not invented here thing and saying, well, I'm not going to use that component because I didn't write it, it's wasteful. How many times have you seen also, you know, uh, a new consultant come in and pick up a, a project that's been done by somebody else, and the first thing they say is, "We got to rewrite it." Mm-hmm. You know, and you know. With if we're all talking objects, we're all talking .NET. You know, we we don't necessarily need to do that anymore. No, uh, you know, if there's one little piece that's not right, that you could maybe slip that out and slip a new piece in, and not have those deployment hassles. Um, the whole idea is not to be so monolithic anymore. Right. right? Yeah. And and to be able to mix and match is uh, is a very powerful, very powerful technique. Cool. Some of my clients are resisting upgrading from VB6 because they think they have to port every line of VB6 code they have to VB.net in order to make that upgrade. I know. And it doesn't help that we have uh, topics, you know, at uh, at conferences and things like upgrading from VB6, you know, like you're going to upgrade, like you're going to run the wizard and then, you know, what do you have to fix and... You know, I get exactly that. I have this VB6 application, it's this Windows application, and I want to convert it. You know, I want to upgrade. What do I have to do? And, well, you do have to rewrite. You have to touch every file and potentially introduce bugs by typing all fumble-fingeredly. And when you're done, you've got something that isn't something you want to move forward with. You know, it's got compatibility layer code, and it's, yeah, yuck. It's interrupting to ADO. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, what else is uh, any last-minute words of wisdom or advice or or calls to action or any promotions or anything that you want to mention before we hang up? If someone's in Canada, they should definitely come to the the MSDN user groups tours, uh, the smart client one that's going on and the interrupt one that's following that. Okay. Um, and get ready for Whidbey. Get a beta somehow and start playing because, uh, you know, C++ is not the only technology that's undergoing big changes for Whidbey. Everybody should be getting ready. And what is your URL of your homepage if somebody wants to look um, at what you do? Best, the best entry point is my blog. So our website is, is Greg Cons. That's the uh, first four letters of Gregory and the first four letters of consulting because we're so old we used abbreviations. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> slash Kate blog. And uh, from there, you can uh, uh, wander around the rest of the site. There's some links. Awesome. 
Well, Kate, I, I can't uh, tell you how enjoyable the show has been for me, and I'm sure the listeners too. Right. So uh, on behalf of myself, and, and I know Rory's out there somewhere doing a great job in his role as an MSDN guy. Jeff Maciolik out in the sound room, and from everybody else here at the .NET Rock staff, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll see you soon. Absolutely. Sometime out there. <laughs> Good night.